The Esoteric Structure of the Alphabet Written by Alvin Boyd Kuhn Narrated by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes God Built the Universe on Number Pythagoras God Built the Universe on the Letters of the Alphabet The Zohar Esoteric Structure of the Alphabet the modern world is awakening slowly to the fact that in the day we call ancient, though it was but a few thousand years ago in the run of millions, advanced men fully worthy of the name of sages were deeply versed in the profundities of recondite philosophy and possessed knowledge of things both human and divine, and well comprehended the great sciences of both cosmology and anthropology. Evident it is that men of this caliber indicted the great scriptures of ancient religions, which have won and held the reverence of mankind so generally that they have been made the unique objects of religious veneration and the canons of spiritual authority for most of the world over long ages. Indeed, the homage paid to them has been of the character of worship offered to something regarded as divine. The tradition has prevailed that the Bible authors were, in truth, men of a divine or semi-divine order, or at least men inspired by a divine afflatus to transmit to mankind the heavenly dictation of sacred truth. A study of ancient literature growing more enlightened as it is pursued is revealing the presence of a definitely formulated and high organic truth structure constituted of the essential elements of a great logical systematization of fundamental archai, as the Greek word has it, or principles of a cosmic order of being, expressed in many varied forms of representation everywhere over the field of ancient culture. Primarily, of course, the great wisdom was embodied in tomes of a vast body of literature, a literature so cryptically recondite that its esoteric purport has almost completely eluded the most erudite lucubrations of the world scholarship from the ancient day to the present. Indeed, it has been the perversions and misinterpretations of that ancient corpus of wisdom that has afflicted the religious consciousness of the world, particularly in the West, with an intellectual befuddlement that approaches the status of a universal dementia for some two millennia. Not only in the scripts of religion, however, but also in a wide variety of other modes of expression was the wisdom tradition embodied and transmitted. It is found, but always in subtle forms of crypticism, a feature that has bewildered and befogged all later conclusions of investigators, in ancient art, in architecture, in myth-making, secret society ritual, dramatic scenario, music, mathematics, anthropological science, logic, rhetoric, philosophy, astronomy, semantics, psychology, festival ordinances, social ceremonies, and throughout the warp and woof of life generally. Now, perhaps strangest of all the channels through which it was given expression, comes the momentous revelation that the sagacious genius of antiquity had even insinuated a form of its basic outline into the very structure of that ground base of all literature, the alphabet. 
the announcement and elucidation of its presence in this, the fundamental semantic code for the transmission of human thought, should rank as an epochal event in the history of world culture. Ancient sagacity viewed high spiritual culture in a different light from that in which it is envisaged today. While modern intelligence aims to disseminate its blessings over the widest popular area, hoping that it may edify the mass body of people generally, the sages of old acted upon a different estimate of the possibilities in the case. They appraised the cultural potential of the vulgar masses as practically nil, and therefore deemed it a sacrilege to cast the precious jewels of esoteric truth and knowledge to the swine that would trample them in the mire of unconscionable crudity, of misunderstanding. It may be said that the history of religious cultism over many centuries has demonstrated the practical wisdom of this conservatism. The perversion, the corruption, materialization, and literalization of the lofty mystical sense of ancient cryptic literature has caused perhaps the most colossal debacle in the culture of spiritual values in the course of known history. Its easily discernible evil fruitage has been the positive derationalization of the Occidental mind as regards all things religious, theological, and scriptural. It has deprived that mind of the cardinal advantage of knowing the sublime meaning of the splendid Jewish-Christian scriptures, which are a collection of ancient mythographic portrayals of spiritual truth, sadly and calamitously mistaken for history. Not only were the sages constrained to adopt methods of crypticism of varied forms to safeguard precious cosmic and anthropogenic truth from desecration by the rabble, but they employed a technique which found its basic authentication in nature itself. As the world below is a mundane reflection and copy of an overshadowing world of spiritual truth, they strove to portray the structural forms of that higher truth by representing it under the forms of its counterparts everywhere existent in the natural world. Even supposed history was oriented into the form of archetypal ideologies. But everywhere in drama, ritual, choral dance, festival institution, and in language, the astute formulators aimed to incorporate their figures of fundamental archive. A great structure compounded of the elements of the cosmic logic of creation was inwrought into the pattern of all these modes of human cultural expression. Finally, if not perhaps initially, its structural design was woven into the formation of the alphabet. If this cryptic, organic form was the structural principle determining the arrangement of the alphabet, it must be seen to have made its significance definitely basic in all literature. For thus the words themselves, carrying the elements of the original letter components, would constantly represent the forms of the archaic thought which, as symbols, they portrayed. So that in reconstructing the hidden outlines of meaning form in the alphabet, we are piercing to the heart's core of the most recondite connotations of all literature. It is a commonplace of present educational theory to say that letters of the alphabet are symbolic representations of the sounds universally possible to the human vocal organs. It is hardly as generally known that in shape they are 
more than mere algebraic X's or sheer onomatopoetic imitations. They are in fact evident forms shaped to picture basic ideas. They are true ideograms. The capital letter A, for instance, is obviously the cardinal letter I, the symbol of primordial unity, since it is also the number one. Split apart from the top and into the creative duality of spirit and matter, the crossbar indicating the interrelation which dynamically subsists between them. The U, V, symbolizes exactly as it is drawn, the descent of spirit into matter and its return above. The W plurala. The W pluralizes it, and we find, not strangely, the W to be the letter that pluralizes words in the Egyptian hieroglyphics. The O readily symbolizes the endlessness of matter and of eternity. So that the Gnostics, when they named the unit of Didi in the cosmos the IAO, had condensed in the triadic name a sermonette in full, signifying the initial bifurcation of the first unit, divine consciousness, the I, apart into the duality, A, and running the round of an eternal cycle, O. And so even Revelation has it, I am the, A, and the, O, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, I-A-O. The almost breathtaking significance of M, when the Spirit says I am, will be introduced later. It is possibly true that literation started with the utilization of the two simplest elements of written symbolism, the vertical line I and the circle O. At any rate, it is to be shown here that nearly all divine names in antiquity were built up and form upon these two. For the Egyptians of remote past time had combined the two in the form of what is almost certainly the most ancient and cross symbols, the crux and sata, and sated cross, call them by the A-N-K-H, more recently spelled E-N-K-H, an O topping an I with a horizontal line at the point of contact. It represents, by the O above, the endless existence of that which is the indestructible primordial matter, the eternal mother of all things. And by the I below, it indicates the emanation of creative mind, or spirit power, from the heart of the great sea of the first matter plunging downward. The horizontal bar shows both their conjunction and their separation, as does any boundary line between two areas. But the median line is important also because it marks the meeting point between the two poles of spirit and matter, since it is at this point that all reality is brought out to manifestation through the union of the two. The A-N-K-H, Ankh, is the astrological symbol. The two symbols with which literate symbolism begins are thus the I and the O. The item of their gender comes first to notice. The I is masculine as standing for the Father's power of generation, which is spirit. The O is the eternal feminine, matter, the universal mother, personalized in ancient religions by such goddesses as Isis, Sibel, Mylitta, Aditi, Venus, Juno, and others. The appropriateness of this symbolism from the subsidiary phallic side needs no accentuation. 
Nevertheless, it is very important and indeed very wonderful. The author has fully dealt with it in his larger work, Sex as Symbol. As all progenation of life can come only through the union of male and female elements of the cosmic duality, a symbol that would dramatize life would have to combine both the I and the O. This the Egyptians did in their great A-N-K-H symbol, which thus is their written word for life, and carries also the connotation of two other elements entering into life, or necessary for life, namely love and tie. Even more than the I-A-O, it condenses in its three renderings the gist of a mighty sermon, and becomes the hieroglyph of both the structure and meaning of life. Rendered in one sentence, the symbol means life, because life can exist only where two things, spirit, I, and matter, O, are tied together by a sufficient cohesive power, love. Love ties the two together to procreate life. The A-N-K-H is therefore the first and greatest symbol in the world, which should make us aware that the cross is the first and greatest symbol because it is the symbol of life and not of death. The ancients said, however, that the soul, when incarnated in the body on earth, was in its spiritual death, and therefore the cross became the emblem of death, but soul death, not body death, a death viewed wrongly by all theology since the days of ancient mystery teaching, since the reference is to the dead condition of the soul when immersed in body, and not to the demise of the physical body. Even in this view it equally connoted life, for it was the soul's relative death that gave life to the creature, whose bodily demise in turn liberated it for its freer life above. Detaching the two emblems from each other as they are united in the Ankh symbol, and combining them in lateral juxtaposition, we have the first divine word and name in all literature, I.O. That it figures with equally fundamental significance in ancient typological numerology is evident from the fact that the two, now converted into numbers, constitute the cardinal base of all mathematics, the number 10. Modern study seems not to have recognized this close connection, amounting almost to identity between the letters of the alphabet as originally devised and numbers. Numbers were indicated by letters. Each letter carried a number value. Hence, words were composed of those alphabetical units that were together express an idea, a mental value, but as well as a numerical value. As far as the scriptures are concerned, even whole sentences were constructed to total a number quantity. As Pythagoras has said, God geometrized in creating the world. He built the universe on number. Such esoteric works as the Zohar of ancient Jewish Kabbalistic literature reveal clearly also that the deity formed the creation by means of the letters of the alphabet. This can have only sense on the predication that, as according to scriptures, he spoke and the worlds formed themselves in order under the vibratory impact of the letter tones of his voice. Every letter sound of the creative reverberation became a constituent element in the cosmic framework. Every letter expressed or in fact constituted a principle or fundamental part of the universal structure. 
Perhaps this is one of the greatest keys to our recovery of the cryptic purport of ancient writing. The archaic I.O. 10 then would be charged with the potency of the first projection of the creative thought force, but only in its first partition into duality, not in its later and further subdivision. In its expression as the prime triplicacy, it was the IAO which became IAH and JAH, and its still further differentiation toward endless multiplicity at the quaternary stage brought it to the form of the great tetragrammaton, the Kabbalistic JHVH. In its full seven-letter expression, it became, on the side of matter alone, the seven-voweled name, composed of the seven primary vowel sounds made by the human voice. The Greek alphabet still retains seven vowels, A, short E, long E, I, short O, long O, and U. This was to express the fact that every cycle of creation runs through seven sub-cycles, each of which sounds out the reverberation of one of the seven successive component form tones. The potent symbol typifying primal genital creative energy of mind and matter combined in the relation of polarity, being the power that dominates all things as it were their creator, became the figure of all combined mental and material ruling power everywhere, as all lesser ruling units were themselves but projected partial rays of the power itself. It was therefore the first king in the cosmic realm, as every divided segment of it was king in the tinier realm, over which it exercised sovereignty. How notable this will appear when we shall see in a moment that the very word king derives from the Ankh name. Nothing has been more revealing than the list of words in English, Greek, German, Hebrew, which can be traced to the old Egyptian name of this mighty symbol. Its central idea, it was noted, is the production of life through tying or union of spirit and matter. The central clue to the meaning of all these derivatives is the idea of tying two things together. It must be elucidated that in building words upon the A-N-K-H stem, the H may be virtually dropped out of consideration, as K-H is equally well expressed by K alone. But KH is also equivalent to CH, which often replaces it. The vowel A is of inconsequential value and can also be dropped. So there is the bare NK left as the hard root. The next matter to be noted is that in later philosophical usage, it was immaterial whether it was written NK or KN. And in the Greek, the NK... KN became NG, GN, a significant item. With these specifications, it is now possible to discern a whole new world of meaning in many common words never dreamed to have come down from so divine a lineage. It is seen first in such words as anchor, that which ties a boat to a fixed place, knit, knot, link, gnarled, gnaw, gnash, accounting for the odd spelling, Ankylosis, a growing together of two bones, anger, anguish, anxiety, a tightening up of feelings. 
But most interestingly, it seems to have been given name to at least four joints or hinge joints, hinge itself seems to be another, in the human body. Ankle, knee, neck, and knuckles. Lung, as being the place where outside air unites with the inner blood, could perhaps be added. Far away as our English, join appears to be from a source in A-N-K-H, N being the only letter common to both, it is certainly directly from it after all. For A-N-K-H was the root of the Latin jungo, to join, N-K becoming N-G through the Greek. From this we then get junction, adjunct, juncture, conjunction, from the Latin past participle form of jungo, junctus. But in coming into English through the French, all these words were smoothed down to join, joint, and this carried so far into English as to give us, finally, union, which is really junction in its primal form. With even the N dropping out as we have yoke, that which ties two oxen together, and in Sanskrit it comes out as yoga, which in reality stands for yonga, meaning union, the English present participle ending ing, as well as the prefix con, meaning with or together, likely comes from the A-N-K-H. For the ing connotes a continuing of things moving on together. Therefore, all three parts of the word connecting would be from the ancient word. Our most common word, thing, likewise comes from A-N-K-H, as a thing that which is created by the union of spirit and matter, a divine conception, and atomic substance. Next comes one that carries an impressive significance in the study, the common verb to know, in Greek, nosko, German, kennen, English, ken, which constitutes the knowing act, the joining together of two things, consciousness and an object of consciousness, for there must be something apart from consciousness to be known. So Greeks called knowledge the gnosis, the Greek verb meaning to be, gignomenai, also has the gn, as token that existence is the result of anking, together of spirit and matter. But a most surprising Hebrew derivation from ankh is the first person pronoun, I. It is in fact the ankh itself, unchanged except for the inconsequential insertion of two minor vowels of o and i, making it anokai. This is amazingly significant, since it reveals the identity of the innermost soul being of man, the I-ego, with the primal cosmic mind. That consciousness in man, which enables him to think and say I, is indeed a unit element of that same cosmic mind. In the I-consciousness of a creature, the central creative mind energy of the universe is nucleated in unity. And as a ruler of all life in every domain, it is in that function and capacity the king of life. That power which knows things is verily creation's king. And also then it must be the power that thinks. Gerald Massey, great scholar of ancient occult knowledge, connects in kindred significance think and thing. A thing being that which has been thought by some mind. The I, as the king of consciousness, both thinks and knows. The German has for king Koenig. 
the one who can, which in German is konen, and the one who knows what is best. And what has the Greek for king? Astonishingly, annex, which is equivalent to the spelling annex. The Greek for messenger, one who ties the sender with the recipient of a message, is angelos, from which is our angel. And messenger itself has the NG in it. Where two lines meet, we have an angel. A nook suggests something in the A-N-K-H meaning. Perhaps hundreds more words might be traced from the venerable but most significant origin in the A-N-K-H. And the words themselves help us reestablish the fundamental elements in the composition and structure of the great ancient knowledge so well called the Gnosis. The letter I, as the spiritual masculine first half of the great I-O symbol, must be examined more closely. It is in the alphabet and in the language the symbol of the divine mind principle. It is the king of all being, knowing, determining, ordering, acting. And so it has been made the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The king number both one and ten, or any multiple thereof, and therefore has for its meaning the word God itself. Its Hebrew name is Yod, Y-O-D-H, and means the hand of God. Its hieroglyphic representation is that of a tongue of candle flame bent as it would be momentarily, if blown upon by a gentle puff of the breath. This is to indicate the breathing of God upon the latent creative fires of atomic energy to blow them up to creative heat. It is suggested in Genesis that when it is said that God brooded over the great deep, water is the symbol of matter as matter in the cosmos and water on the earth are the common universal mothers of life. And matter contains the latent atomic fire which creates all. God blows upon this latent fire to inflame it for creative work. This is indicated in the bent candle flame of the Yod. Ten is esoterically called the perfect number. In the highest possible sense, it is the number that rounds out or perfects a cycle of creation. And it does this through the interrelation of the central upper triad of noumenal creative forces, cosmic spirit-soul-mind, with the septent of lower physical energies, as anciently represented in the great system of Egyptian Gnosis, and faithfully reproduced in the Ten Holy Sephira of the early Jewish Kabbalah. The Yod then stands for the divine creative fire that, in its deployment as a decanate of powers, forges the worlds into shape, prefigured in the divine mind. The triple-aspected cosmic noumenon designs the blueprint of the creation to be, and the seven hierarchical energies carry them out in the world of concreteness. If one reflects on the remarkable physical phenomenon of a ray of white light passing through a triadic glass prism and casting the refracted rays upon a screen in the seven colors of the spectrum, one will have an instructive analog of the number basis of creation. Revelation symbolism evidently represents itself as the beast with seven heads and ten horns, the three horns in excess of the number of heads being presumably in the invisible noumenal worlds the heavens of pure thought. 
Concomitant with the Io primacy and symbolism runs a variant representation which depicts successive stages in the creative process. It begins with the symbol of inchoate matter. The O is representing primordial inorganic homogeneity, or the unity and eternity of life in its unmanifest state. It in fact typifies what to us stands as empty space. It is empty, to us, as exhibiting absolutely nothing in visible, palpable form. The world was without form and void. But to the cosmic consciousness, it is doubtless not empty, since it is filled with substance apperceptible to that consciousness. What it seems to us is best depicted by the empty circle. The next stage shows the circle with the visible point in the center. This design indicates the emergence of the first organic entification out of unmanifest being. Circle with point in the center. The third depiction shows the circle cut horizontally into two halves, upper and lower, by the median diameter line. This diagram shows the bifurcation of the original unity into the creative duality and the polarization of its two self-contained opposite natures a prerequisite for any creation of visible, organic worlds. The fourth stage indicates the opposition or crossing of the cross within the circle, the vertical line standing for the spirit force and the horizontal for the physical. Lifting the cross out of the circle, we have in its simplest form, and since life can add increase unto itself by this crossing of spirit and matter, the cross becomes the sign of addition, the plus sign. The fifth stage has the same configuration, but as it were, turned one-eighth on its axis, giving the X within the circle. This is to show that motion has been introduced, that creation has begun. This, similarly as to the bent candle flame of the Yod, indicates that God's impulse has begun to move. Then, as the initial motion imparted to the creation not only adds to its working potential, but vastly multiplies it, the X becomes the sign of multiplication. In this final form, the design eventuates in giving us the great symbol of the number 10, X. And then if we take the X out of its eternal encirclement in the absolute existence, and by the beginning of the movement this emergence is indicated, and place the two great symbols side by side, we have astonishingly that mystical word and symbol that enters so mysteriously into scriptural allegory, the word ox. The elucidation of the esoteric intimation of this word is reserved for the finale. The extensive list of divine names derived from the I.O. base may now be scanned. I.O. is itself the name of one of the goddesses with whom Zeus, king of the gods in the Greek pantheon, entered into an escapade that exoterically sounds less honorable than would be expected of divine royalty. But as paramour of the supreme god, she would stand in the role of the great mother of life, like Cybele, Isis, and the rest. An Io character occurs in other mythologies. As, however, the I functions as the male spiritual symbol, it is not to be taken as the vowel force alone, but rather as the consonantal force. It was paired with each of the vowels in turn to represent the conjoined duality. And so we find IA, IE, and IU 
standing as the base of a number of early deific names. The IA came to serve as the final syllable of all names of countries as Germania, Britannia, Australia, Russia, Austria, Scandinavia, Asia, India, Arabia, and many more. The IE begins the original Greek name Aesus, Jesus, preceded by the H, denoting again the first notion of the breath of God. It began some Greek words for divinity, principally heros, sacred, holy, and a priest, from which comes hierophant, hierarchy, and the old Greek name for Jerusalem, Hierosolima. But as IU, it stands as one of the most basic of all divine name forms. IU was in fact the shortest and commonest of Egyptian verbs, and meant to come. Because the divine nature was considered an element of consciousness that was in course of its evolutionary coming to deify mankind, the Messiah doctrine connoted the idea of the slow, gradual, and continuous coming of the deific mind in the world. In fact, a common name in Egypt for the messianic character was the comer. Iu is he who comes regularly and continually, periodically. Hence, Iu is the primal Egyptian name of Vadidi. As such, it formed the first element of the great compound Egyptian name of the Christ Messiah, Iu M. Hatep, which was shortened by the Greeks into Imhotep. In full translation, this would read, Iu, he who comes, M, with Hatep, peace, also seven. He who comes with peace as number seven. This name comprehends in itself another great sermon like the Ankh symbol, referring to the occult fact that in any cycle of creation, the principle of divine consciousness that will unfold to bring peace to the chaotic subconscious elements, the so-called six elementary powers, the potencies in the atom, comes to full outward expression in the seventh and last round of the cycle. Christhood is always a seventh unfoldment. Our own word seven comes from hetep, as this shortened to hept and directly became the Latin septem by the interchange of H with S, as occurs in very many instances, as in Asura becoming Ahura. H and S are also closely related through the Hebrew letter Shin, which is either S or SH in sound. S is really only a sharper H. The next step in the development is quite notable, the I being male spiritual, a consonant, masculine gender, rather than a vowel and representing the projected ray of divine mind that beamed forth out of the primordial being, ran the course of its projection into the deepest bosom of matter, planted its germinal seed in the matter's womb, then turned to return. The configuration of the I was changed or enlarged to include in its shape the suggestion of the turning upward for the return. It might most significantly then be said that it was turned into the letter J. With more definiteness, the J form could bespeak the masculine divine than the vowel feminine or the androgynous aspect. Also in this form, it could be more fitly prefixed to the other vowels as J-A, J-E, J-O, and J-U. 
this important change, the number of divine names begins to multiply exceedingly. It is impossible to pass by this item of the turning of the I into the J. The two are essentially the same letter, still in Latin. Without calling attention to the astonishing significance of the fact in relation to one of the key words in the biblical allegory of the soul's descent and return. In the Hebrew Mosaic allegory in the Old Testament, the place where God descended in a cloud to meet and commune with his children, Israel, was Mount Sinai. This name then must mean the lowest point to which the spirit soul descends to meet matter, the pivot point round which it swings to begin its return to the heavens. This is diagrammed by the lower turn of the J. What must be our astonishment, then, to discover that this key name, Sinai, derives from the Egyptian word Sinai, Sinai, meaning point of turning to return. And where, in concrete reality, is that point located? Nowhere else than in the physical body of man. The physical body of man is the Mount Sinai of the Bible. And where else could God and man meet than in the body of his human child? An obscure point in scholarship has at last come forth to enlighten us on one of the most important features of our sacred scriptures. Greek mythology gives us Jason, a divine figure. In the Old Testament, we have Jacob, Jabez, Jared, Jackin, and perhaps others. James in the New, Jax, Jack, a folklore character in the Didian Man. Janus, definitely a Christ figure in Roman mythology. The J-E form gives Jesus, Jesse, Jeshua, Jeshu, Jezebel, Jeremiah, Jerusalem, Jehu, Jethro, Jesophat, Jehovah, Jephet, and others. In passing, it seems quite worthwhile to analyze the true context of the name Jesus. It is the J-E combined with the Egyptian S-U, meaning son, heir, prince, successor to the king and the final masculine terminal letter, which was F in Egyptian, but became S, U.S., in Latin, Jesus, J-E-S-U-S. It would then mean the coming masculine divine son of the Godfather as Prince of Peace. The masculine terminal F of Egypt was kept in the variant form J-O-S-E-F, J-O-S-E-P-H, as in the Russian Yasuf of the present. This is the most prominent in the J-O group, which includes Joram, Josiah, Joash, Jonah, Jonas, Job, Joseph, Joachim, Joel, Joshua, and in the Norse, Jotun. These have never been recognized for the divine names they are because of the inveterate mistaking of the Old Testament allegorism for assumed factual history. But being in the allegory of man's divinity immersed in the flesh, they are inconstably the names of the divine or Christly principle personalized in the many myth forms. Horus, the Christ of Egypt, had for one of his designations the Jokund. The Ju form yields Judah, Judas, Judea, Jubilee, Judith, Julia, along with significant common noun derivatives such as judge, jury, justice. 
but Latin mythic usage exalted the Jeyu to the very highest pinnacle of divine dignity in naming it supreme deity after the Egyptian Jeyu. Adding the word for father, Peter, Peter, to it to form the great name of the king of the gods, Jupiter. Even the god's wife and sister partook the glorious title, Juno. The great Caesar boasted of his fabled derivation from Didi and his cognomen, Julius. The juniper tree carries this connection with divine source. Latin juventus, or youth, convey the idea that the gods are ever young. The I, the J, the Y are all forms of the same letter sound. From this we have our junior, the German has Jung, meaning and pronounced as our young. The J-U that begins the Latin Jungo, Iungo, to join, indicates that spirit and matter are joined together anew to generate fresh life. This I-U, J-U, stem is much more significant than has ever been seen before. In the form of Y-U, it enters into the great world signifying the birth of Didi, Yule. Every letter, of course, expresses some aspect or segment of creative purpose. Alphabetical schematism has been presented in several different formulations. In the Hebrew alphabet, there were said to be three mother letters, Aleph, A, Mem, M, and Shin, S-H. These ostensibly represent, respectively, the pre-creation stage, A, the middle stage of the spirit's involvement in matter, M, and its final stage of glorious deification, SH, the symbol of fire. M is the symbol of water. Life emanates out of potential fire, is baptized for evolutionary purposes in water, the symbol of matter, and returns to source with fiery potentiates actualized by having overcome the powers in the water matter. The Hebrew word for fire is esh, and spirit evolves its divine fire in man, ish. The divine fire in man made him the ish man, and the divine man in the tribal life of some nations was called the shaman. How the other letters were grouped in relation to the three mother letters is matter of uncertainty. Several schematic designs have been suggested by students of Kabbalism, but two consonants, beside J, were made the central frame of another extensive run of divine names. These are R and L. The names derived from or based on them must be listed. It is evident that, as the usage worked out, R and L may be regarded as essentially the same letter. The Chinese confusion of the two is well known but their identification became almost a necessity in the ancient Hebrew-Egyptian exchange of words, ideas, and symbols, inasmuch as the Egyptian alphabet had no L and was forced to substitute R in all words where the Hebrew could use either L or R. It is therefore extremely likely that the great basic words, as seen so well in Latin, rex, king, and lex, law, are of practically identical significance. The heavenly king is the Lord, and the old Saxon derivation of Lord from law, word, as Ruskin points out, is more than coincidental. The king's will was the law in all archaic life, and in theology, it is still true that the will of the Lord is the law of life. 
Just why R and L came with J and SH to embolize divinity is not too clear. They, along with M and N, are of the class of letters called liquids. They are sounded with a continued flow of the voice. They could thus have been chosen as representing the on-flowing course of all life. This idea would not have been inappropriate. It may be the correct one. At any rate, R came to its divinest application in being chosen as the name of that greatest of all spiritual deities of antiquity, the Egyptian sun god Ra, whose symbol is that of the sun, the circle with the dot in the center. A cursory view of names based on R and L yields many interesting items. The R and L can be associated with any of the vowels and can either follow or be preceded by it. From AL-LA, we note Allah, Aladdin, Alheim, Elohim, the frequent AL of Arabic names and a host of others, perhaps are all. From EL-LE, we have El, the Hebrew word for God, the plural being Elohim, the masculine article the in the four languages derived from Latin is, as in the Spanish, L, and in the French, le. This will not be seen as significant until it is recognized that the definite article is, or was, a cognomen of deity. Spanish the is the Hebrew word for God, El. English the is the Greek for God, Theos. And Greek masculine form of the is ho, a Chinese word for deity. The ancients habitually prefix the to divine names as the Osiris. From il comes the Arabic Ilbrahim and the Latin il, meaning this, that which is, a succinct definition for deity. The Latin name for the sacred tree was the holm oak, and its Latin name was ilex. O-L and U-L yield a few words referring to divine things, Hebrew olam, the world, eternity, the aeon and ola, up, to go up, and the Mohammedan ula, Abdullah, may trace origin from these two bases. A-R-R-A shows in numerous words, A-R meaning river in Hebrew, and there are several rivers on the world map named the Ar or Arar, the stream of divine force emanating from the heart of being to create words was called the river. Every ancient land had its sacred river. As Ra was the great solar deity, the origin of ray, radiant, radius, radium, radiate, and array is evident. As the king was the one radiant with divine glory, the rex, ray, roy, roy, such words as regal, royal, real, as in mount, real, Regulate, along with lex, legal, loyal, leal, and legislate, are traceable to this source. Plato has the famous myth of Ur, a divine character. The Greek has Er, with the masculine singular ending, Os, given the great god of divine love, Eros. Re must be the base of the common Latin word for thing, res, the stem of which is just re. This gives reality, realize, and reify. And the prefix denoting repetition, re, 
as life is constantly repeating its processes, as in renew, revive, restore, etc. IR-RI shows scant usage, but OR-RO and UR-RU, we encounter a prolific wealth of derivatives, all pointing to high, if not directly divine, reference. It is significant to begin with that OR is found to be the base of words in several languages meaning two things, gold and light. French for gold is OR, and Latin ORUM. Our word OR, Hebrew for light is ORA. Gold, the indestructible, was symbolically related to light, which is also indestructible. The creative energy of gold flowed forth as light like a golden river, so that all three, gold, light, and river, show the derivation from Ar, or, or, Aurora, god of dawn, needs no further explication, Aura and Oriole, likewise. UR reveals a grand list of shining names. It was in itself the greatest and most likely the original word for fire. The Egyptians wishing to name it the fire added the divine article, the, which in their language was the hieroglyph for the letter P. This addition made it P-U-R, per, the Greek word for fire, to this day. From this comes pure, purge, purgatory, also pyre, pyrotechnic, and empyrean. The Greek U changing to Y in English, as in hundreds of words. You are, a variant of or, and or, was the name of that state of the primordial spiritual fire, from which the first divine ray, AB-RA-HAM, proceeded as first father of spiritual Israel, not the historical Hebrews. In the same category, it was the name of the universal Egyptian symbol of creative fire, the Ureus, a serpent of fire, which was sevenfold as typifying the seven archangels that created the universe. It is therefore another representation of the dragon or beast with seven heads. It is strange that our modern discovery of the creative fire of the universe and the atom has brought into prominence as the most fiery of the elements, those two whose names incorporate both the title of the sun god and the Ureus, radium, and uranium. The German language has some hundreds of words prefixing URR, the Ursprung, Urquell, Ursach, all meaning original, source, spring of being. All life came out of UR, the primordial font of cosmic fire. A verse in the Chaldean Oracle says that all things are the product of one primordial fire, every way resplendent. How resplendent it is our modern nuclear physics is now revealing. The Hebrew word for father being Ab, Abraham, is father Ra, as clearly as Hebrew can say it. Ram would be this creative fire immersed in water, matter. The list so far traced becomes more than doubled through the prefixing onto these root forms, the Hebrew article the, which is just the letter H. The addition of the letter H has the force of divinizing the word, as has been seen. So from H-A-L, there is hallow, hail, halal, Hebrew to praise, hallelujah, hail, and more. 
from H-E-L can be traced heel, health, heil, German hail, hell, German bright clear, and most significantly the Greek helios, the sun. The spiral or helix was a figure tracing the spiraling course of the sun, or its planets around it. The feminine names Helen, Helena, with the H intensified into S, becoming the name of the moon, Selene, are assumed to derive from it also. The Greeks adopted unto themselves the divine name Helenas, signifying bright and shining ones, dubbing the rest of humanity barbarians. They did this in the same fashion and with the same motive as the Jews adopted for themselves the divine name Israelites, dubbing the rest of mankind Gentiles. From the HOL stem comes, of course, holy, whole, holism. Few of particular divine character or reference derived from HUL. The H-R group yields many of the exalted significance. Har gives heart, hearth, hartima, a name of Horus, the great Christ of Egypt. Harpocrates, another Greek-Egyptian Christ name. Perhaps harvest, harp, harpy, the harpies of Virgil's Aenid. H-E-R gives a long list. Hero, title of one grade of deities in Greek mythology. German her, god. Herald, Hera, Juno's Greek name. Heracles, Hercules, Hermes, Mercury. And reinforcing the E with the I, Heros, Greek for sacred. H-I-R appears perhaps in the German for shepherd and Hiram. H-O-R gives the base for perhaps the greatest of ancient personalizations of Christhood, the Egyptian god Horus, who stands on the horizon, hour, orology, hormone, horn, horticulture. Horn was a universal ancient symbol of divine power. H-U-R shows in Ben-Hur and Hurricane the natural exemplification of divine fiery power. The Hurrians were a people sharing Asia Minor with the Hittites. As H comes out often in the roughened form of CH and KH, and also exchanges often with S, the H basis of hundreds of words, all in one way or another intimating deific reference, the derivative field is vastly extended, embracing such words as chalice, charity, care, cure, cross, cheer, choir, chorus, Christos, charm, cherish, cherubim, Serapis, seraphim, sir, sire, seer, ser, Egyptian for chief, elder, sire, Kerafu, Egyptian for the two lion gods on the horizon. These lists are put down almost at random. It is certain that intensive research would immensely increase the total number, and no doubt others of the greatest importance could be revealed. These formations from the basis I.O. are of the greatest interest and importance. They do not, however, give any intimations of the organic structure in the alphabet, which this work is intended to disclose, but they will appear in clearer light as that hidden structure is outlined. To enforce the cryptic significance of the disclosure now to be made, it is necessary to present, with the utmost brevity, the fundamental meaning graph of all ancient religious literature. The Bibles of antiquity have but one theme the Incarnation. The vast body of ancient scripture discoursed on but one subject, the descent of souls, units of deific mind, sons of God, 
into fleshly bodies developed by natural evolution on planets such as ours, therein to undergo an experience by which their continued growth through the ranges and planes of expanding consciousness might be carried forward to ever higher grades of divine being. These tomes of Holy Writ therefore embodied their main message in the imagery of units of fiery spiritual nature plunging down into water, the descending souls being described as sparks of a divine cosmic fire, and the bodies they were to ensoul being constituted almost wholly of water. The human body is seven-eighths water. It can indeed be said that the one sure and inherent key to the Bibles is the simple concept of fire plunging into water the fire being spiritual mind power and water being the constituent element of physical bodies, as well as the symbol of matter. Soul, spirit, as fire, plunged down into the body as water, and therein has its baptism. Hence, soul's incarnation on earth was endlessly depicted and dramatized as it's crossing a body of water. A Jordan River, Styx River, Red Sea, Reed Sea. Since the water element of human bodies is the sea, which the soul of fire has to cross in its successive incarnations, and it is red in color, the Red Sea of ancient scriptures is just the human body blood. When the red fire of spirit soul was gradually introduced into and permeated the original seawater, which was the bodily essence of earliest living creatures on earth, it changed colorless salt water into its own color, red. The Red Sea never could have meant anything other than the human blood. The scriptures reiterate that fire descended from heaven and turned the sea into blood. This transformation, of course, took place in man's body, not in the world's oceans. This is a clarification that alone can reillumine all old scriptures with a flashing new and enlightening orientation of meaning. Egypt said that souls came down to kindle a fire in the sea, to create a burning within the sea, verily to set the ocean on fire. This has actually been done, but in man's veins and in his passions, not in the seven seas. It is now to be announced that the great meaning structure discovered in the alphabet outlines this descent of soul fire into water and its return to its native empyrean. If one arranges the letters in the circular arc downward from A to the last letter of the first half of the alphabet, and then begins the upward return with the first letter of the second half and completes the arc to the final letter, describing the lower half of a circle, one will have blueprinted the organic structure here revealed. On the thesis just presented, one would challenge the claim of such a structure to demonstrate that the first letter or letters were somehow charactered as fire and that the two middle letters at the bottom or turning point of the semicircle were charactered as water. We are proclaiming that the structure meets that challenge and therefore proves itself as true and correct. The result is that, along with every other symbolic device of ancient meaning form, even the alphabet embodied the central structure of all ancient literature, the incarnation, the baptism of fire soul in and under body water. If this is to be confirmed, we must find fire at the top or beginning of the descending arc, and water at the bottom or turning point. 
It must now be shown that the conditions our thesis requires to prove itself are precisely met in the alphabet. The discovery was made and certified when it was perceived that the alphabet did fulfill these precise conditions. The top or beginning letters are A and B, and should the A alone or combined with B represent fire. The middle letters coming at the base of the arc are M and N, and mirabil dictu, they represent water. From A to M, then, the descending arc traces the downward or involutionary plunge of fire into water, reaching its lowest depths with M, from N back to the final letter, whatever it be in different languages. The upward return arc represents the arising out of water and the return through evolution of the heavenly fire to its true home, completing the cycle. The fire character of A and B does not show out in such explicit form as does the water character of M and N. Nevertheless, it is intimated and implicit in various ways. The celestial fire emanated from primal source as one ray, but soon radiated out in triadic division and finally reached the deepest heart of matter in a sevenfold segmentation. But in its first stage of emanation, it was always pictured as triform. The Yod, candle flame, being its type form, the Hebrews constructed their letter which was to represent the fire principle, the three Yods at the top level, with lines extending downward to a base, on which all three met and were conjoined in one essence. This gives us the great fire letter SH, Shin. But the triform fire symbol was only possible as the result of the one first ray bifurcating into the two fires of spirit and matter and uniting to generate the product, which became the third two-flame aspect as preceding the three-fire aspect. And what letter is it that depicts this two-flame stage, the first real creative stage? Precisely what the thesis calls for, the first letter, Aleph, composed of two yods, one above, the other below, the central axis, a slightly variant form of our mathematical sign of division, a horizontal line with a dot above and one below it. All life is an interplay between the upper fire of spirit and the lower fires of sense and the flesh, of pure fire in air and impure fire in water. Even the English A carries the same depiction as it presents the one vertical line of spirit raying downward, the eye, as being split apart into duality, with the two separated lines still connected by the horizontal bar of mutual interrelation. The resulting Hebrew word, then, for fire, is just what the specifications of symbolic representation demand. The word should be composed of symbolic letters carrying the idea of the one fire, the dual fire and the triple fire signs. And this is precisely what the Hebrew word for fire is. It is esh. Really, aesh. Composed of aleph. Subvoweled by e and shin. Aleph is the dual letter, shin the triple, and the middle bar between the two yods is the aleph in the single bar fire. Then significantly man, who embodies this single, double, and triple fire, is ish. One would ask at once whether the English word ash would carry the same connotations, 
being the visible end result of fire, it is extremely likely that it does. Not only is it at once evident in its relation to fire as it residue, ashes, but the Norse mythology, depicting the radiating streams of living fire under the imagery of a branching tree, chose the ash as the tree type of the fiery emanation, the Yggdrasil, the ash tree of life. It has already been stated that the patriarchal character designated as Abram, personified in the Hebrew formulations the first father of spiritual life, emanating out of the primordial essence of fire, you are Ur of the Kasdim. This latter word signifies not national Chaldeans, as those thus designated were not an ethnic group, but a spiritual caste. The term stands for the first archangels, or creative fires, the seven. To be the father of spiritual life in an evolutionary cycle, this ray had to be the first aspect of the emanation. Therefore, it would be found to be composed of the first two letters of the alphabet. This is precisely what is found in the Hebrew word for father, AB, linking it with the Egyptian RA, the radiant solar deity we have AB-RA-M, receiving later in its evolution the developing powers of godhood represented by the fifth Hebrew letter, He, and so becoming AB-RA-H-AM. And as Abram came out of the primordial imperial fire, Ur, you are, it is hardly coincidental that even you are begins with that letter, U, which, with V, represents the downward line of descent, the turning upward and return to the heights. The detailed knowledge is not at present available to trace the chain of linked steps in the descent of the defined flame from A down to M. It does not seem apparent that at any rate, in extent alphabets, there is to be found a sequence of letter significations paralleling and depicting the successive stages of the creative fire's descent into the water, or matter involvement. If such an explicit arrangement was planned for the first alphabets, it seems impossible to trace the stages in orderly succession in present alphabets. But what emerges with astonishing certitude is that the central letters, M and N, carry the significance of what the diagram demands, water. Thus, at the point of lowest descent, where our thesis requires water, there indeed we have it. Every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, beside carrying a number value, also has attached to it a symbolic monograph. B is Beth and means house. G is Jimel and means camel. D is Daleth and means door. H is he and means window, etc. When we come to M, we find it is named Mem and means water. N is called Nun and means that which is the animal life in water, fish. This is in the Hebrew. But amazingly, when we turn to the Old Egyptian, we find that N has the name of Nun likewise, but means and is the hieroglyph of water. Its character letter is simply a short line intended to indicate seven waves. As our English script, M is a succession of three waves. M, therefore in Hebrew, and in the English as well, marks the nadir of soul's descent into water. And N, at the same level and therefore also signifying water, 
or as fish, the organic life in water, marks the turning point for the return, the Mount Sinai of evolution. Its reference is undoubtedly to this earth, which true symbolic insight discovers is itself, and not any hill on its surface, the Mount, or Hill of the Lord, on which God meets man in a cloud of fire, and on which all sermons are preached by his inner deity to man, and all temptations, crucifixions, spiritual initiations, and final transfigurations take place. From A, the point of emanation of the spiritual fire, the creative stream of living energy, the river of the vivification, as the Greeks call it, proceeded and swept downward until at M it had immersed its fiery potencies in the water of the human body, therein to begin to do its evolutionary work of kindling its own bright flame of spiritual consciousness in the Red Sea of the human blood. And now it is known that this red blood was originally seawater. As fire causes water to evaporate, the ancient algorithm represented the divine fire as drying up the water of the bodily sea, permitting souls to pass over the watery terrain dry-shod. Variant symbolism had the Christ nature walking on the water without sinking into its depths. Egyptian figurism had the fire causing the water to boil, with the soul subjected to the danger of being scalded thereby. So the graph of the soul's descent and return swings down from the fire height of AB to MN, and there turns back upward to end in the final letter. It may be chance circumstance, but is at any rate an odd one, that if we start with A and then take in succession the final letter of the English alphabet Z, the final one of Greek O and the final one of Hebrew TH, it gives us the word Azoth the word used in medieval alchemy to denote the primogenic source essence of life. If it were thus made up of the first and last letters of the three most representative alphabets, it would have been intended to denote that basic essence which constitutes the substance of all life from the first step of creation to the final dissolution of all things. In descending from the height of fire essence to the depth of water substance, the energization would have had to pass through the intermediate stage or form of air. Fire symbolizes pure energy of spirit. Air typifies mind. Water stands for emotion, as earth for sensation and the scale of conscious states. If any of the letters between A and M are intended to mark the air stage, it has not come to knowledge as yet, unless it be that bent form of the tenth letter Yod, indicating the candle flame bent by a puff of air to denote the original impulse of God's mind on the flame, is to be taken in this significance. M and N, separate or conjoined, form the framework of hundreds of words relating to the condition of spirit energy when immersed in matter. As the primal mind fire is the father, A.B., so the primal matter essence is the eternal mother, which in Hebrew is A.M. M will be found to begin virtually all words denoting motherhood. M represents three or five or seven waves of water, and it should not be a matter of surprise, therefore, 
that we find all life on the planet having its generation in and from the seawater. Seawater is, in a sense, still the mother of our life, because that life is sustained by the electrodynamic potencies in our blood, which is still chemically undistinguishable from seawater. Our blood is the red seawater. So we get the mother name by conjoining the letter of potential fiery energy A with matter symbolized by water M. Our colloquial MA for mother is essentially the Hebrew AM. Starting with AM for mother, there is met an almost endless list of words whose connotations link them to the matter side of the life duality. To view them in the light of this orientation of thought is to discern in them new and vivid intimations of esoteric meaning. These recondite connotations can best be seen by contrasting their sense with their antonyms, denoting fire, spirit, and the fatherhood. To begin with, their creative powers symbolized by the letters at the head of the alphabet are gods, while the being who embodies god power in matter is M-A-N. The divine powers at the summit are unmanifest, in matter they become manifest. At the summit, there is but one power, undifferentiated. Below in matter, it has multiplied itself and become the mani. At the god height, the power is purely spiritual. At the lower level, it comes out as mental. Spirit above, mind below. At the top, there is maximum of power, even though purely potential. At the lower range, it is minus, or at the minimum though actual in its limited expression. A man is the cosmos in miniature. That which is expressed down here is comparison with the superior potential above. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.